All right, well, we are jumping back in, as you can see on the screen, to our series that we've called Common Struggles, because we're talking about struggles that are common, uh, common to us all. Um, and you know, in, in particular, just we've been talking about the ones that have kind of bring some confusion with it, typically into the church. So we started uh, several weeks ago looking at the topic of depression and just really how the, the culture thinks through that, assesses its problems and solutions, and then also how the scriptures would help us equip, equip us in that very area. And so today, uh, we've got a lot to discuss, so um, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time in review, but uh, yeah, we, we, looked, we looked last time that we were together, we int- introduced the topic of anxiety, right? And we tried to understand exactly um, what the Bible is talking about when it describes fear, uh, when it talks about anxiety, worry, uh, being troubled, the cares of this life, things like that. And like depression, uh, anxiety is also an emotion. And this one, though, is characterized by feelings of tension and worried thoughts. So we talked about last time. And we saw that it can be very debilitating. And we often fear other people, the fear of man, we fear some aspect about the future. There's just lots of things that we can, that we're, our hearts are tempted to be afraid of. But today we're going to look at, we, we spent last time kind of understanding anxiety according to Scripture, and today we're going to look at how to battle anxiety or battling sinful fear. So that's what we're going we're gonna to talk through. This will be our, our fourth lesson in our study, and we're just entitling today Battling Anxiety. Now, just as we're kind of getting into this topic, um, when it comes to actually battling fear, and we think through kind of the culture's perspective on this, the, the culture doesn't really go to war on anxiety, right? They don't really battle it. And that's because they say that anxiety comes from stressors in our lives, meaning that anxiety comes from something outside of us. It doesn't come from us, necessarily. We are anxious, but it comes from the outside. And so we can't really have, then, any real hope for lasting victory in this area because our lives are always full of stressors, right? Lives are always full of problems, and so the best we can hope for is to learn to, they say, cope with our anxieties. You've probably heard that before. I went to the doctor a week and a half ago, and he asked me how I cope um, with my stress and anxiety, um, how, to, how we cope. Or they'll say, how do you manage your symptoms? And so, and so that your symptoms of your anxieties, they don't dominate your lives. And by far, the culture's most popular coping mechanism for at least some immediate relief is anxiety medication. That's kind of the, the route that the culture takes when it comes to sort of treating anxiety. But the problem with medication is that it doesn't address the root issue. Okay? It doesn't address the root issue. It's not like meds are inherently sinful. It's not like you're sinning just by taking a medication. And, and in fact, you could say that in some instances, the medication may even provide some relief. Okay? They just won't fix the underlying problem. So if you want to think about this, it's kind of comparable to taking like a Motrin or an ibuprofen. Right? Um, but I was thinking about this. Okay, how, how would, it's, it's kind of like taking that for an abscess tooth. Has anybody ever had an abscess tooth? Yeah? So, and, uh, 
the, 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 the taking the medication, taking the Motrin for the abscess tooth might, might temporarily relieve some of the pain. But if your tooth is infected from a deep cavity, um, guess what you need? You need a root canal. Yeah. You need a dentist to come in there, drill a deep hole in your tooth, remove the infected portion of the root, and fill it all back in and put a crown on top. Like, that's what you need. And you could keep taking the medication. You could keep masking the symptoms with Motrin. But the pain's going to come back. And not only will the pain come back, but it's going to get worse. Because you're not dealing with the most fundamental problem. If your abscess tooth goes untreated, the infection from that tooth will spread to your jaw. Then it'll go down your neck. The pain will compound. And that pounding toothache is meant to alert you to something. The pain is meant to alert you to something. It's something that's wrong. Something that needs to be fixed. And the same is true with anxiety. The same is true with fear and worry. Those are the symptoms. You can think of it as the toothache of a much more serious infection in our souls. And if we don't address that infection, then like a, like a normal abscess tooth, the, the, the infection will spread. So if our anxiety is like that toothache, what's the root issue? We talked about that last week. Remember? It's the root issue of anxiety, according to Jesus in Matthew 6. Unbelief. Yeah, he, what, is he, what is the language he uses? O you of little faith. That's right. O you of little faith. And we're going to take that as our starting point today. So turn, turn with us to Matthew chapter 6. And we'll kind of pick up here. As a segue into today's discussion. So it's part of a Sermon on the Mount, and it's a great text um, to work through, think through. I think I said last week I was meditating this during our, our time away. Uh, beautiful paragraph here, but the topic is clearly fear and anxiety. Look in verse 25, Matthew 6. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And he specifies what you will eat or what you will drink, or not about your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you here it is, O you of little faith. O you of little faith. Therefore, again, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious. The third time he's commanded that. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There's a lot here in this passage. I want to read the whole thing to you so you can see the context of this passage is fear and anxiety. Fear about what you're going to put on, what you're going to wear, you know, being provided for, what's going to happen tomorrow. And he says right in the middle of this, 
you know, as he's challenging these, the, his disciples, he calls them, oh, you of a little faith. And so his point in this paragraph is that the disciples' anxiety over what they would eat or wear or what would happen to them in the future, that anxiety reveals that they are struggling to trust God. Right? The anxiety reveals whatever they're anxious about. It reveals that they're struggling to trust God. That is the root issue. They're doubting if God will provide for them. Right? You heard that through the, through the our reading. They're doubting if God cares for them. That's unbelief. It's, it's weak faith, as Jesus says. He even says that they're acting like, or they're on the verge of acting like, Gentiles who are idolaters, who don't have a heavenly father, that can provide for them. You know, he says, the Gentiles seek these things down in, in verse 30. I'm sorry, verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. See, don't be anxious. He's essentially saying, you have a heavenly father who knows what you need. He knows that even better than you do, and you are his child, and he is so committed to caring for you, so don't run around in frantic anxiety like people who don't know God. Trust Him. So, as we're just kind of wading into this lesson, that simplifies things a lot when it comes to this complex discussion about fear and anxiety. If you boil it down, our sinful fears are all rooted in unbelief. And it means that we're deceived in some way. We're doubting God in some way when we're anxious. And that means that the solution is fairly straightforward too. And this is the good part. <laughs> because that, the, the root canal then, this, this, spiritually speaking, is when we extract unbelief. Or to say it positively, when we strengthen faith. That's the answer. And that's essentially, I mean, once you kind of key in on that, you see that all over Scripture. That's what David says in Psalm 56. 3 and 4, listen to this. Psalm 56, he says, When I am afraid... I put my trust in you. Fear strikes, activates trust. He says, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So battling anxiety then at its heart is a battle to truly know and trust the Lord over what you might feel. So, what if I never get married? I, speaking of you, I am married, but what if I never get married? That lightning bolt of fear strikes, and then it ignites your thoughts. I'll be so alone. I can't, I can't imagine not having a family. Who's going to take care of me when I get old? Every day that passes, the window of opportunity gets smaller and smaller. And it's right here, in this very moment, you have a choice Will you put your faith in God when you are afraid? Or will you continue wallowing in your unbelief? Are you going to believe that He knows what is best? Romans 11, 33 and 34. Are you going to believe that He is in control of your life? From the beginning to the end, Romans 8, 28, and working everything out for good. Are you going to believe that He loves you? Romans 8, 38 and 39. Will you believe that He will take care of you into your old age regardless of your marital status until your purpose on earth is finished? Philippians 4, 19. Will you believe that God can put joy in your heart whether you have a family or not? Psalm 4, 7. 
Will you believe that God has prepared the good works for you to walk in every day of your life, including today as a single person? Ephesians 2.20 Will you choose to be fortified in truth against what you feel in the moment and act accordingly? That's the question. Like Abraham, who hoped against hope. Or, will you give in to your fears and obey them? That is the essence of the battle. And like a root canal, (laughs) several, uh, it is often uncomfortable, um, this fight of faith. But if we don't deal with the unbelief, if we don't extract the infected root, it will spread. If we just keep masking the root with medication or, or something else, like a change in our circumstances, if I can just get married. If we... If we mask it, the fear will compound and it will lead to more sin. Psalm 37.8 says, Do not fret, do not be anxious, don't fear. It only leads to evil doing. Don't fear, why? Because it's going somewhere. It's going to lead to more evil. Your unbelieving fears lead to more sin. So just take that last example. You're afraid of being alone. That fear will lead you into other sins. You might envy your friends who are dating. You might date an unbeliever in desperation. Or if you start dating someone, you might shade the truth. You might lie about something because they're afraid they might see the real you or whatever and break up with you. That's the infection. It's spreading because it's rooted in unbelief. Your fretting leads to more evil doing as the unbelief persists. And if you never recognize the unbelief that's driving your anxiety, if you never repent at that level, you will not experience much lasting victory over fear. But if you do, if you press in, if you own your unbelief, if you search the Scriptures for God's truth, guess what's going to happen? You don't have to merely cope with your fears. You don't have to manage symptoms. There is hope for actual, real, lasting transformation. As the Lord deepens your faith, He will actually produce His courage in you. In fact, God has given us His Spirit, and His Spirit is fundamentally not, He says, a spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, it's not a spirit of fear. It's a spirit of power, love, and self-control. And He wants our testimony to be the same as David's was in Psalm 34. He said, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him, i.e. those who trust Him, are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Psalm 34, 4 and 5. Our Lord does not want us to be sinfully afraid about anything. Philippians 4, 6. And He is committed to help us get there. So, this morning, I want us to break this process down a little bit. We're asking, how do we cultivate faith when we're afraid? That's the essence of it. How do we cultivate faith when we're afraid? Because it's not, it's not if, but it's when, right? How do we put sinful fear to death and become a people who are strong and courageous in Christ? How do we become a people who are, as David describes in Psalm 34, are radiant? And what's encouraging is that this change process is the same for battling any other sin. It's just applied to sinful fear. Okay, so I'm going to give you some biblical steps this morning, but they're going to sound really familiar 
um, to things that we've said before. It's just kind of applied in a specific direction, okay? So we're looking at essentially five steps for, for battling sinful fear. And these steps apply whether you're dealing with some of the low-grade anxieties that just kind of plague us every day, that fill up my journals, my prayer journals, you know, as I'm rolling those burdens over to the Lord, um, or the, the, the other end of that spectrum of the, the high-intensity, debilitating, level 10, you know, the stuff of panic attacks. These steps, the scriptures are sufficient to help us in, in all these areas. And I like to kind of weave in here, we're doing, we're kind of double dipping here if you think about help. These same steps are what you'll use to help other people who are struggling with fear as well. So it's what you need for your own heart, but it's also what you can use to help others. So you can think of them as sort of benchmarks, goals, as you're, as you're discipling somebody. All right, so what do we start? Number one, here's what I'd say, this is super practical, okay? So somebody comes to me, the first thing I want to do is, is help them pinpoint the specifics of their fear. First thing I do in my heart, whenever I notice that I'm afraid, or typically when I'm irritated, because it's usually irritation is rooted for me in fear. Whenever somebody comes to me struggling with anxiety, I always start with more questions. I want to understand the specifics of what they're afraid of, okay, like what's their anxiety around, and then also the specific anxious thoughts that they have, okay? Kind of two domains. There's, I mean, there's a lot more we could say about this, but keep it simple. The specifics of what you're afraid of and the specific anxious thoughts. And when I struggle with fear myself, this is usually where I start in my journals before the Lord. I'm, I'm writing out what I'm afraid of, why I'm afraid, what I'm saying to myself in that fear. So, example, a young man might be gripped by fear when he's around certain people, or he might just think, I, I kind of just fear, fear people. And you start asking some questions, and it's like, well, you fear those people and not those people. So that's interesting. Okay, so you fear this certain group of people. That's the what. Then there's the why. Okay, what is it about those people? Why are you afraid of them? Well, he's afraid of, of, of these people and not those because he craves this group's approval, not that group's. Right? There's a lot at stake with this group. Okay, so that's helpful. So then there's the question of what is he saying to himself? What are his anxious thoughts? Well, he's constantly second-guessing everything he says because he doesn't want to look dumb. He doesn't want to look inferior. And that's helpful to know. It's helpful to recognize because it's starting to help us get to some of the issues. It helps us pinpoint the specifics of his fear. So all I'm really going to say about that is you want to start with just kind of narrowing it down. Okay, what am I afraid of? What am I saying to myself? What, what, what's, that, what's that real that's going in my heart? And the next... Once I've started to pinpoint what's going on, whether for myself or, or when I'm discipling other people, then I move into this sort of second step, which is, I'm just saying, you, you want to recognize and confess your fear as sin. Recognize and confess your fear as sin. Now, it seems very simple, kind of straightforward, but uh, this is one of the hardest steps, at least initially. Everything in our flesh wants to justify fear. Like everything inside you wants to justify why you're afraid. And just to assume that the fear is just happening to you. Right? You know, it's, a, it's a, some legitimately scary situation. What if this happens? <gasps> like, and then the, the probability factor is climbing. It's like, ah, like, we really could go to war with China. 
you know, our economy really could tank. I mean, those are big fears, right? Legitimately scary situations. Life is full of stressors. And you, and you think, I wasn't afraid before this situation. Situation happened. Now I'm afraid. Right? But what we've got to see is that we are responding in unbelief to those pressures in fear. Right? Pressure comes. I have a choice. I'm going to respond now. And when I'm afraid, I'm responding in unbelief. We have to agree that to bring ourselves in alignment with Jesus that our fears are rooted in weak faith. It's hard to do. Take some humbling of yourself. When you've applied for the jobs after graduation, uh, multiple jobs after graduation, but you haven't heard back yet, and you feel absolutely panicked, you're responding to that circumstance with weak faith, with fear, and with a host of anxious thoughts. And underneath all that are doubts of God's care, doubts of whether or not He will provide, doubts about His power. So we have to recognize that. And not just recognize that we are responding, but actually take ownership in honest confession. We can't keep hiding behind excuses in this area. We have to stop shifting the blame. These are all forms of what the Scriptures call concealing or covering or denying our sin. The Lord wants us to own up to it and agree with His assessment. And when we do, there are some incredible promises for us to sink our teeth into. Turn over to 1 John um, chapter 1. It's familiar territory. We covered this several semesters back, but this is just good to dog ear in your Bible. First John 1, starting in verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, so there, read, blame shift, minimize, conceal. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, here's the promise, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he doubles back down. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So think about that. Jesus is saying you have little faith. So if we say we have not sinned, we say, no, 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 it's my circumstances' fault, then we make Christ a liar and his word is not in us. So a lot's riding on this, guys. A lot's riding on whether or not we humble ourselves. So that means when you're anxious and you own it as your sin, when you come to God and you say, I am guilty, Lord, of not trusting you. He promises you some staggering things. He says, I will forgive you. Complete forgiveness and cleansing. Any breach in the relationship is restored by humble admission. Proverbs 28.13 promises the same thing. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So we come to Christ the first time, you know, from death to life. We come to him for the first time in humble faith like this. All our anxiety, all of our unbelief is completely forgiven. Past, present, and future. 
Our record of debt against God is wiped completely clean, and we are brought into His family never to be removed. But even as believers, when we're, we're not put out of the family because of our unbelief, but we do still need forgiveness. You can think of it as kind of a familial forgiveness. You're not getting, you're not getting into the family. You're already in the family. But it's sort of forgiveness within the family, within your family dynamic, right? So when we sin against each other in my house, that doesn't mean I just kind of take one of my kids and, you know, disown them, toss them out. No, we have to work through that. We have to reconcile. We've got to, there's a breach in the relationship, and we've got to work, work, work on that. But we work on it because we're family, right? Because we're in the family. So the same thing is true from a spiritual standpoint. Our relationship with God is dynamic, too. If we're walking in sin, we're hardening our hearts, we close our ears to Him, He closes His ears to us. Our prayers are not, they're getting jammed up. Biblical principle. So we need that familial forgiveness from Him when we sin. So what does this sound like? What does this honest confession sound like? Well, it's as simple as this. Father, I know I have been sinfully afraid of failing this class. How often do we just let that go? You know what I mean? We're churning in anxiety, churning in unbelief, and we just let it go. But Father, I have been sinning. I have been sinfully afraid of failing this class, and I have blamed it on my circumstances for way too long. What is really going on is that I'm choosing not to trust you. I have been living in unbelief, like Jesus says. I admit I am guilty. Please forgive me, Lord. It's as simple as that. Even if you don't know all the root issues yet, even if you don't know how to battle it, it starts here. Coming to the Lord in simple humility. And if you're helping somebody else, you're probably going to recognize a lot of blame shifting at first when you start moving towards somebody who's sinfully afraid. You might need to graciously help them see that that's what's going on. You can take them to a pastor like this, help them see that. It's super easy. I'm guilty of it myself to keep thinking that the reason I'm anxious is because somebody or someone else has done something to me or, or there's some circumstance that I'm in. But the change process starts here when we take personal responsibility for our fears and confess them as sin. Now, as important as this is, it leads to a, a third step, very closely related, and you've got to consciously entrust yourself to Christ and His promises. You need to entrust yourself to Jesus. And his promises, specifically his promises for mercy. So you think like mercy, love, he loves you, he's with you, and he's going to help you, he's going to change you. He's made these promises to you, the one of weak faith. And this is really important, and I'm drawing this out as you could really combine points two and three, steps two and three into kind of one. But I'm drawing it out because I want, to, I want to draw something specific out to you. Sometimes when we confess our sin, when we do point number two, we fall into the trap of thinking that our confession brings atonement for our sin. You know what I'm talking about? Like God's angry with me, and I'm going to confess. I'm going to say the right things, and that's going to like kind of bring, it's going to pacify God's anger toward me. But that is not the case at all. Our confession is simply us saying, hey, Lord, I'm not hardening my heart anymore. I'm not stiffening my neck and running from you. I'm coming back 
I'm admitting I am guilty. That's all confession is. It's a guilty plea. It's Christ who has atoned for our unbelief, not our confession. He is our propitiation. He is our righteousness, even amidst our fears. And it's Christ who promises to change us. So when we confess, we also want to make sure that we, in that confession, we're entrusting ourselves to those very promises we're seeing here. That we are forgiven. That we are cleansed. Back in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he goes into it a little more. Look at chapter 2, 1 John. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, listen to this. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Get your eyes on Him. He's your advocate. He's the righteous one, not you. He is the propitiation for our sins, verse 2. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He's that atonement, not you. So, I don't want you to sin. But if you do, if you are afraid and you're floundering in unbelief, look to Him. For your righteousness. He stands advocating for you in your fear at the right hand of the Father. So here's what this sounds like after you've owned your sin. You say, Father, I've confessed my sin to you and I entrust myself to your promises. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for the complete cleansing I have in Christ. Thank you that your love for me never changes, even though I'm terribly afraid. Thank you that your son took the punishment for all my fears when he died on the cross. Thank you that I am clothed in his righteousness right now, even as I struggle with these panic attacks. I know that you have begun a work in me and that you promise to complete the work. I know that you will conform me to your son and you will turn me into a person of courage and faith rather than fear because that's what you promised. That's the language of entrustment. That's the language that has its eyes fixed on Christ. You hear the hope in a prayer like that. When we confess our sin and entrust ourselves to Christ, you're already beginning to drill down into at least, at least some of that infected root. This is like half the battle. Even right now, you're stoking faith in God's promises of forgiveness. You're not falling prey to the deception of trying to cover up your sin or atone for it yourself or somehow please God by your own righteousness. You're not falling into those things. You're already laying an axe to the root of unbelief in your heart, and the hope starts flowing in. Now, if you're helping somebody else with fear, it's important that they have a practical working knowledge of these gospel realities and, and of their identity in Christ, who they are now in Christ. Because they're not going to feel it, and it's not going to be automatic. Okay? They need to know that Christ has atoned for the fearful and the weak, and that they will not be cast out if they're struggling to trust. They need to know that they aren't fearful people anymore. They don't need to keep identifying as fearful people. They need to identify with Christ. And I'm a saint now in Christ that struggles with fear. You want to make sure that they've got His promises underlined in their Bibles and that they can discern their own temptations. Like when they try to blame shift their 
their sin or they're trying to atone for their fears themselves. And so you can think of these first two steps, or these first really three steps, as making sure we're established on Christ at the outset. Right? As making sure that we're that we're depending on Him for our relationship with God, that we're hoping in Christ alone for change. That's the gospel foundation that we need to fear, to battle fear. And so when you have that, so important, because when you have that kind of I'll call it gospel wind like blowing in your sails, then you, you really need to start unpacking your specific anxious thoughts, and you're in a position to be able to do that. You want to unpack those thoughts and begin discerning how God's Word addresses them. And that leads to our next step. We call it, we'll say that you need to renew your anxious thoughts with specific truth. You need to renew your anxious thoughts with specific truth. So the scriptures talk in terms of like our anxieties, our anxious thoughts kind of multiplying within us. The Psalms use that language. And it feels overwhelming because it's just sometimes you can't even really navigate why you're so panicked. Um, But there's something going on inside you. There's an inner man talking. And so it's very important that we begin to kind of unpack that, unpack those thoughts, and then to begin to renew those thoughts with specific truth. So if you would turn over, again, familiar territory, Ephesians 4. You get a lot of mileage out of some of, of select texts. Um, Ephesians 4. Paul talks about this process, and it it applies to our our anxious thoughts. He says, verse 22 of chapter 4, So we learn Jesus to put off our old selves, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So Paul says there's an old self, that even though we're in Christ, he's still hanging around, she's still hanging around. This old self is completely corrupt, and it's deceived, and it's got all kinds of desires based on that, those deceptions. So all your sinful fears are just that old self. The old self is deceived, the old self that is corrupt, old self that's distrusting the Lord. That's all the old you. And Paul says here to put that off. So you kind of have to know what you're saying, and then to renew those, those thoughts, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So discard, renew. Over in Philippians 4.8, he, he describes it as thinking on things that are true. We looked at that when we did our exposition of Philippians. So what this means then is you've got to have some specific truths to like counter specific fears in your life. Kind of have to know. What I like to do is when I've written those, that, those fears out, kind of from point number one, come back to those things and begin evaluating them with Scripture. And again, specific scripture. So I've, I've got it just a, a few. It's so case specific, right? Like if you're struggling with fear, then we would need to know, like, what is that fear? What is it around? And then to kind of backfill that with specific truth that would help you. But let me just sort of shotgun you here with some, with some uh, examples, right? So this, I'm adapting this from John Piper's chapter uh, from Future Grace. He's, this is really helpful. I've added a few of my own, but he said, when, you, when he's afraid, this is, of starting something new or some new venture, and he's got fear around that, 
he goes to Isaiah 41.10, where he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The question is, are you going to believe that? You know, in this case, and for him it was helpful. That was a helpful text whenever he was starting something new and was afraid of this new venture and how it might go. God is with him and will uphold him. When he had the fear, which is definitely a fear of mine, a fear of having an unfruitful ministry in the church, I get like, is all this going to be in vain? You know, like, you kind of wake up in the middle of the night with that sort of panic feeling. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I think about that every Sunday. When I drive in here, that's, that's my prayer every Sunday, is rehearsing that back to myself. And it fuels hope and displaces fear. The fear of having an unfruitful ministry in the church. The fear of being too weak to do something. He goes to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. It's an opportunity for God to, per, to showcase His power in your weakness, to come through for you when you're weak, to supply strength when you're weak, to produce fruit through this suffering. His grace is sufficient. That's a promise. Another one, the fear of making a specific decision. Doesn't ever feel that, do you? The fear of making a specific decision. I added a bunch of these because I thought, man, this is too good. Listen to this promise, Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. We go to him, we go to his word, we seek wise counsel. We know, Psalm 32, 8, God will instruct us, teach us in the way we should go. Psalm 139.16. I love this one. This is like probably the most liberating for me. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Meaning, I'm just, I'm just living God's ordained will today for my life. I'm, I'm walking in these days that were pre-written Man, that's liberating when I'm making decisions. (laughs) Because that means I can't mess it up. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. That puts some steel in your backbone. You're making the decision. And of course, Romans 8.28, the, the mother of all promises, right? Like, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes into the fact that, you know, you were elected, foreknown, for the foundation. Then he's just bringing you in. It's like, saved you, justified you, glorified you. It's just this, like, big God. Helps in decision-making, you know? Helps me. Fear of criticism. Fear of opposition. Fear of persecution. 
Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? The fear of not making enough money. Psalm 50.12, every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills, this is the Lord speaking, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. I mean, it all belongs to Him. So, He's the wealthiest being that exists. In Matthew 6, 8, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In Philippians 4, 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. How quickly do we doubt? How about the fear of failing? Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So if what I'm doing is part of His sovereign will, it's not going to be stopped. And if it is stopped, that's the best thing for me. So all I'm doing is showing you, just trying to map out for you some examples of how the Scriptures map onto our fears very specifically. And if you want to bring some, we're synthesizing some things together here. So if you want to bring in another text that is often appealed to when it comes to fighting anxiety, it's 1 Peter 5, 7. You know that one. How's it go? Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. So I think this, what I like about that, what brings, what I think Peter brings in to the synthesis here is that this is done in the presence of God. Right? Like your mind renewal is happening in his presence, in prayer, pleading with him, laying these things out before him, going to his word, asking him for guidance, asking him to, to fill your soul. So essentially, it's a call, it's Peter's call to renew your mind in the presence of the Lord around your anxiety. Cast your cares upon me because I care for you. So, what does this sound like to renew our minds and cast our cares on the Lord? Let's just take, I know I gave you some, some cases there, but let's take, let's take one example, okay? Father, I know you feel, I know I, you know that I feel super anxious about my exam tomorrow. There's a lot riding on this class. There's a lot riding on my performance on this exam. And if I don't do well, I might fail. If I fail, my graduation will be delayed. If my graduation is delayed, it might really mess up my future prospects. And so it goes, right? But Lord, your word says that you have written all my days in your book before I was ever born. Psalm 139, 16. And that means I can't ultimately mess up your plans. You tell me that everything is under your sovereign control. Isaiah 14, Isaiah 46, even my performance in this class is under your sovereign care and control. You know absolutely everything I need before I ask it. Matthew 6, 8. If I need to pass this class to accomplish your will, then you will not let me fail. Psalm 37. But if for some other reason... If some other reason your good plans are different for me, help me trust you in that too. I know that whatever happens comes from your hand and is for my ultimate good, Romans 8.28, and it fulfills the days you have planned for me, Psalm 139 again. Help me to believe you really do care for me more than I even know. Jesus says that if you care for the birds, you certainly care for me as your own child, Matthew 6. Help me now as I entrust myself and my future to you to work hard today Help me to do my best in this class and entrust the results to you, James 4. 
As I do, I pray that you bless my efforts and that you help me to do well and pass this class. That's a prayer of a renewed mind. And in discipleship and counseling, I'll often work with people to write out a prayer like that. That takes thought, right? You're not just going to willy-nilly that bad boy. You have to have an open Bible. Maybe somebody help you to address the specific fears and write out that prayer. Study those texts the next week. Pray that very prayer every single day, multiple times a day if you need to. In fact, part of what I just shared with you came from one of these assignments this past week. The point is you've got to attack the specific fear with truth from God's Word. And finally, last one here, we'll go quick. You've got to act on the truth in faith. And I added, and do good regardless of your feelings of fear. You have to act on what you know to be true. And you're acting in faith, meaning you're saying, Lord, I trust what you say, even though it flies in the face of what I feel. And I'm going to yield to that and do the next right thing. I put do good. The reason this is so important, I mean, obviously, is how transformation happens, but fear is extremely selfish. You ever think about that? Fear is extremely selfish. Why would I say that? Just think about yourself. Yeah. It's, you're preoccupied with yourself. I've never seen, like, if somebody's debilitated in fear, just, like, cranking out good works. You know? In faith. Why? Because they're, they're enslaved to fear. They're enslaved to themselves. It's, it's really hard for an anxious person to focus on the needs of others because they are self-consumed. They're not trusting God will meet their needs, and so they're not free to serve others and do good to others. And so, as we're renewing our minds, we're storing up in our minds God's character, His promises toward us, that ought to, must, look as tangible as possible. It's got to find tangible ways to act on the truth. Even when, and, and especially when, you might say we feel afraid. Because your fear is, is going to pull you back. It's withdrawal. It's don't do good. Self-preserve. And Christ says, trust me and lay your life down for the good of others. This is what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 4.24. I've got it on your, on your outline there. When he tells us to put on the new self after we've renewed our minds. It's this new self. It's this new way of living. It's what he's getting at in, in Philippians 4.9 when after he's told us to renew our minds and to think on these things, he tells us to put into practice for ourselves everything we've seen and heard in Paul. He's saying we've got to act in faith. We've got to choose to do good. We've got to choose to be faithful in the specifics and especially when we're afraid and we want to shrink back. So, in the scenario where you're afraid, whatever that is, Think through what's being hindered by your fear. Right? 
How is your fear hindering you from a life of fruitfulness in service to others? And just general purpose, like typically, you know, you'll fret and fret and fret and fret and fret about the exam, and what are you, what are you not doing? It's for the exam, right? It's just like Jesus' words ring true, like you can't add a cubit to your height. I worry, like it's useless. It's like the dumbest thing we could do. And, and yet we do it. So the point there is that the fear is keeping you from something productive and fruitful. So think through that and then think about what do I need to do? What's the next right thing? Spell that out and do that even if you're terrified. So we're going to end there. Um, Paul talked, I put Philippians 4, 4 through 7 there because there's a lot of those practical outworkings in Philippians 4, 4 through 7, which we, we preached this entire sermon on weeks ago, you know, about choosing to rejoice, cultivating gentleness. Um, and choosing to be grateful. And those are all specific kind of put-on type things you can do that will undercut your fears. So a lot there. Um, But anyway, next week, we're going to take a break from the teaching, and we're going to do a and a Okay? I've got a friend coming in, Omri Miles. Told you about him. He's in a pastor in Tempe, Arizona, planting a church in um, New Orleans. He's visiting our family this next week, he and his family. And he does a lot of counseling at the church he's in. So I want to give you guys an opportunity to ask questions about really anything. But, this, but I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking depression and anxiety. Focus in on those. Um, if you could, definitely prefer you send me those questions. And then uh, I will curate those. Um, and I'll lead some of that. But I'll probably, either way, you guys probably won't send me questions. I've done this long enough to know. I'll get like three. Um, so prove me wrong. Okay, prove me wrong. Send me some questions. But I got lots of questions that I can ask. And, um, and I think it would be cool just to kind of understand more about their family and their, their passion to, to plant a church in, in um, New Orleans as well. But I would love for this to be a discussion and hear from you guys on where your, where your questions are about depression, anxiety, medication, approaching that with other people. How do you just, well, yeah, just anything you want to ask. Okay? Is it fair? Now, I might say I don't know, okay? So we'll have to, you have to be content with that, too. But anyway, all right, so we'll do that next week, and uh, you're dismissed.